Before we jump into today's episode, I just want to give you a little reminder of the little bonus freebie opt-in that I have for you today. So I have seven plant-based dinners that are going to upgrade your nutrition. So seven plant-based dinners for you. Now you can find these seven plant-based dinners if you go to www.sheridandecker.com forward slash podcast. 25 because this is episode 25 which is super exciting today's episode is all on going plant-based and what it means to go low carb high fat with ellie so just to complement today's episode go download those seven plant-based dinners and also just a little reminder that today's podcast episode is sponsored by my gut health quiz so if you haven't gone and assessed your digestion then jump to my website or you can go to the show notes or jump to the link in my bio, in my Instagram, assess your gut, see what it's telling you and yeah, maybe there's a few changes you can make. Anyway, enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Empowered Hormone Podcast where we pull apart all those taboo topics periods, parasites, poos, hormones and more. Let's question everything you've been taught about your body. I'm your host Sheridan Decker, a gin-loving gut health nerd passionate about debunking myths on birth control, period pain and IBS. If you struggle with bloating or your period is less than pretty, then join me as we chat about everything relating to gut and hormone health. Today, we are touching on a new topic that I haven't delved into much before with you all. So we're looking into plant-based nutrition. To talk us through it, we have the privilege of speaking to Ellie. So Ellie identifies as a marathon runner, nutritionist, yogi, and yes, someone whose favorite food genuinely is kale. She's not just saying that. Ellie has a bachelor's degree in health science, majoring in exercise science and nutrition, and practices as a nutritionist. She specializes in metabolic efficiency for fat loss, endurance performance, gut health, and is a plant-based nutritionist. So thank you so much for being here today, Ellie, and taking the time out to have a chat. Not a problem, Sheridan. Thank you so much for being here. It's always nice to speak with um, like-minded people or um, even just people who are doing the same thing day in, day out, you know, sharing ideas and thoughts and concepts and learnings it's a really nice opportunity to to connect so thanks for reaching out no and you're right you sometimes you feel like you get so caught up in your little space of the one or two people that you already see in your industry doing the same thing and obviously um I got passed on your details by Selene another beautiful lady in the health space but once you start to connect you realize how many of us there are doing these kinds of things and it's actually quite amazing because when you start to band together you're like wow we've got all these resources we can share and there's you know maybe 20% of us doing this and there's like 200% of women struggling with these kinds of issues so the more we can empower the more we can educate I think it's just a yeah a beautiful thing yeah absolutely and speaking with practitioners you do get I think this like exponential growth in your ability to help serve your clients because there's like one thing that the textbooks say on paper and then there's another that comes out of real life clinical practice and like being able to um, 
yeah, connect with practitioners to put those two together, that's where we can really start to achieve the most for our clients. Yeah, you're right. In in clinic verse, yeah, some things will say do X, Y, Z, and you're like, X, Y, Z is not working on client A, B, C. This is exactly, exactly. <laughs> you need a plan B or C or D. Yeah, 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 yeah totally exactly. So speaking of being a practitioner, tell us a little bit about your journey, your health journey, and how you came to do what you do today. Yeah, good question. It's a loaded one, and I, I'll try and keep it relatively short. Um, I... I always wanted to practice, well, for as long as I can remember, have wanted to practice as a nutritionist. So I remember being sort of a teenager at high school, just incredibly interested in sort of the Ironmen that I was watching on TV and the footy players that I was watching on TV and interested in what they were eating, like how were they fueling their body and could they perform differently if they were to fuel their body differently. So that was sort of the, the start of it. And so I went and studied Uh, exercise science and nutrition straight out of school which I loved I was very young though so I don't know if I really appreciated the experts in the field that I had access to at that time and I was also I would say relatively immature in terms of life experience and didn't have the 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 confidence either that I felt I needed to be able to practice one-on-one in the nutrition space so after uni, I went off and I started working in corporate health and well-being, which gave me this incredible opportunity to travel the world, get to learn about the average adult, you know, the average adult that's trying to raise children, maintain a job, train for what they love training for, or, you know, struggle with their health. So that 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 work in corporate health and well-being, which sort of spanned about eight years was this great learning opportunity but also in that time I learned a lot about myself I was going through a lot of my own health challenges in terms of emotional challenges burnout from working incredibly um, hard maybe not efficiently (laughs) working incredibly hard Uh, I was having digestive issues which were sort of there prior prior but we're just sort of snowballing and getting worse and worse. And so that eight years working in corporate health, whilst at the time I felt like I was diverging away from my original goal of wanting to be a nutritionist working one-on-one with people, it was actually the best eight years for learning about people, learning about the struggles, and then also going through my own struggles as an athlete, a corporate worker, and someone with major digestive issues and also hormonal imbalances. So I went through many periods of amenorrhea (laughs) losing my period getting it back after a year then losing it then getting it back Uh, and so then after that time I decided to go and study health coaching which was just a way again of me building that I guess that that hands-on approach to working with people and also taking a more holistic approach to people's health and nutrition. Not forgetting that I studied at Deakin University in 2000, I I, um, graduated in 2007. So it was a, you know, it was an overly holistic health sciences course that we get today out of places like Southern School of Natural Medicine, for example. So doing that health coaching course was a really nice way of opening my eyes up to all of the other levers that we can pull as nutritionists to help people make real changes, you know, leaps and bounds in their, in their gut health and their, and their hormone balance. So I, 
that's a that's a brief version of my yeah. my uh, professional and I guess health history. You know, to here we are today, where I'm working a lot with athletes, a lot of females yeah. with digestive and hormonal imbalances, and I do specialize in plant based nutrition. Like, it's not to yeah. say that you have to go plant based if we're working together, but I do. I do attract that audience and I do have a specific program for those that want to either transition to plant-based or just refine their plant-based approach to their nutrition. So after that burnout and things, when, when did you go plant-based and also how did you heal that, that fatigue and that sort of hormonal balances and those gut issues? Was that through that further holistic study or were you seeing someone at the time or? So in terms of going plant-based, I first of all like really made the transition as opposed to sort of dabbling in only eating sort of ethically sourced meat or reducing red meat consumption. That was all happening prior to, let's say, 2011. But in 2011, I moved to the United States for work and I was reading books about sort of meat production there in the industry and I was just so turned off. I was actually like... I think the only way that I can maybe start to make a difference here is if I just stop eating animal products and in that maybe I can also change the thoughts of one or two or maybe hundreds of people to do a similar thing. Because in the US, and it's a little bit different in like Australia and other parts of the world, but in the US, US, you know, this was the major one for me, the average KFC chicken I'm going to name names. Average KFC chicken was slaughtered at 19 days of age in comparison to a standard sort of, let's say, um, chicken raised for human consumption, which I think is slaughtered about 35 days of age. Wow. So I'm like, okay, there's one number, but what has to go into that chicken to make it a viable product at the end of 19 days? Yeah. And then it just turned, it it, it was like, like the animal protein industry these days it's no longer like this nice process of having a chicken out on the on the back lawn sort of pecking about and laying eggs every day it is it's a factory farm like it's a factory it's profits there's potential for loss uh there is how do we sustain how do we sustain the the want that the that people are showing for animal proteins and it's just not sustainable it is just not and yeah there's so was know, that so obviously that yeah you're obviously so passionate about this which is incredible and amazing but was it that passion that made you go plant-based or was it your digestive issues or was it a combination of the both no to be clear it was that passion that yeah. made me want to go plant-based so it was purely just wanting to like this <laughs> you know plant my feet in the ground and say, right, this is what I'm doing. If I can motivate anyone to do something similar or just remove like one animal protein meal a week from their diet, that will be a good thing. And then I moved back to Australia from the US and there was a lot of social pressure for me to start eating meat again. So I did, I only ate sort of meat that was sourced from friends' properties. Yeah. And um, then it slowly sort of made its way back into my diet and I wasn't loving it, but it did. And now we're sort of going years down the track to 2016 where I reached a place of burnout. Uh, And as somebody who had longstanding digestive issues anyway, 
I was, it was sort of reaching a crescendo in 2016. So I was sort of reacting to foods that I wouldn't previously reacted to, you know, a lot of bloating, let's say IBS like symptoms. So a lot of bloating, a lot of pain, a lot of flatulence, constipation, um, and alongside that other burnout signs and symptoms. So insomnia and training fatigue and anxiety and things like that, hair falling out. Um, so then I started working with a nutritionist who I had previously worked with in the corporate health and wellbeing space, which is Steph Lowe. And I knew that she took a really holistic approach to things. So I was like, right, I'm going to start working with her. And that's when we started doing gut health testing, you know, old school CDSA testing back then. Uh, and I, co- I couldn't go plant-based at that time. Like my iron levels were too low. My B12 levels were too low. And so although I had sort of by that stage been back in and out of plant-based nutrition, I know it's a hard timeline to keep tabs on. Um, I did start eating some animal proteins at that point, just, you know, really strategically having some red meat and some eggs, but I was, but I was very strategic about what I ate because I had a clear goal, which was to regain my digestive health, regain my menstrual cycle and, um, and regain like my iron and iron levels. And at that point, I didn't want to have to use supplements. I just didn't want to pull myself out of what I would call a hole using only supplements. And that's when I just just strategically was using animal products. And I always said to myself, once I am able to maintain my health with nutrition and, you know, certain supplements, that's when I'll go back to plant-based nutrition. And so that's what I did. So now you're 100% plant-based and have been for a couple of years then or so I'm not 100% plant-based I do allow some eggs into my diet still but it would be fairly infrequently um let's say once a fortnight something along those lines so I would I would still say I'm plant-based but I'm just not 100% (laughs) plant-based and um I have been that way since 2018 Wow, that's, yeah, that's incredible. And that's an amazing story. What fascinates me the most is one, the fact that you strategically used animal products to help you heal, because I know that is a massive one for um, women that I see uh, in particular who struggle with really severe digestive complaints and some of them do want to be 100% plant-based, which I, I get and I resonate and understand. But at mm. the same time, when you're in that you know that quite that fight or flight digestive state to remove um all your animal products and just be getting it from plants can be really hard if you're reacting to a lot of plant foods like you know when you think of fodmaps and yeah. and legumes and too much broccoli and too much cow and too much fiber and too much this and that then yeah. all of a sudden it's like right well i can't i'm not eating animal products and now i'm not eating all these fruits and veggies as well and it's just yeah it's just too much for that space. And I think the same is when there's hormonal imbalances and you do need some of those key nutrients or just trying to get enough fats in or different things. I I do Mm. think, like you said, animal products have a time and a place when they're, you know, sustainable and, you know, organic or grass-fed or those kinds of things. When you're getting quality forms of them, not just, you know, the cheapest cut you can find essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's... I think that's the beauty and like the art of working one-on-one with people is that let's face it, the decision to go plant-based for most is 
not one they're forced into, like a decision that's based on morals and ethics and learnings and a gradual process. And so I have that chat with my clients if I am sort of in that position where I know that like, let's say animal products might be a faster route to the solution, but then there's like, there's usually, usually a plant-based option, not always, but usually. And so I have that frank conversation with my clients unless I already know from the get-go that they will not make an exception to their, their choice to, to eat entirely plant-based, then I will have that conversation with my clients. You know, when we come to looking at ferritin and B12 and preconception and pregnancy and, you know, have that conversation about, okay, you know, here's option A, which allows us strategically use animal proteins. Here's option B, which allows us to stick with that goal of primarily plant-based here's the pros here's the cons and almost like dialogue on it with my clients as opposed to being dogmatic about the approach they have to take that's the way that I practice anyway because I feel like people should be engaged in their their health journey and um, if I can see that there's you know there's two ways of doing things then I'll try and present that to my client and share with them the pros and the cons yeah so yeah and like everything and we'll just touch on that briefly there are pros and cons of being you know a hundred percent like I would say I follow a plant-based diet but I do eat meat right Mm -hmm. so most of my fuel so to speak comes from fruits and veggies and whatnot but I do have meat in it for those who are a hundred percent plant-based and then for those who may be very in it there's like anything there's there's pros and cons to each but what fascinates me and what I don't know a lot about is how and how what does um, being high fat on a plant-based diet look like and I follow this in a few um, people Simon Hill and some of these you know quite science uh, sporty based 100% plant-based people um and I find, you know, it quite interesting, fascinating. But what does that look like for you when you're working with someone who needs those fats in their diet and they're just going, I'm just not getting full enough or how do I get enough energy at Absolutely. 100% plant-based diet? Yeah. And to be clear, that's also one of the reasons why I created Plant-Based Kickstarter, which is a like an online offering for people that want to transform their plant-based approach to nutrition is because... I found that there was very little support for a female with hormone imbalances who wanted to eat predominantly plant-based. There wasn't a lot of support for somebody that needed to have quality fats in their diet. You know, there's these staunch whole food um, plant-based, like let's say practitioners or specialists or researchers who I just think... um, without speaking out of turn, don't have that practical insight into working with females who need fats. We can't get by on a low-fat, high-carb protocol. You know, some of us can, but not really. So I think it's really important that we do know how to include quality fats in the diet. And it's absolutely doable on a plant-based diet. We've got, you know, let's say sources like avocados and nuts and seeds and good quality nut and seed oils, ideally cold pressed. And then we do have the option of some saturated sources. So coconut oil, coconut cream, coconut yogurt. And it's just a matter of, I think, getting the split right. So for some of us from a a genetic point of view and also from a gut microbiome point of view, we might be more suited to consuming 
more of the unsaturated fat sources, like that first little part of the list that I met, just mentioned, avocado, nuts and seeds, nut and seed oils. And then for other, others of us who, you know, don't have that genetic predisposition and don't have the gut microbiome issues, then including some of those saturated fat sources, it's absolutely okay. So that's the, the coconut products, the coconut, the coconut oils. But I still recommend skewing the, the fat intake primarily to the avocados, the nuts and seeds and the cold pressed nut and seed oils. And for most of my clients, they would be consuming between one and two serves of those quality fats per main meal. Um, one serve being the equivalent of half an avo or two tablespoons of nut seeds, oils or nut and seed butters. Yeah, yeah. So that doesn't sound um, that doesn't sound ridiculous. You know what I mean? It's not like, whoa, that's so much fat. When I think of women who come to me and they've done keto or something, and it's really thrown their hormonal picture out, and they're like, but I was doing this fasting, and I was doing this keto, and I was doing this bulletproof thing, and then I wasn't eating till that, and this and that. You know, <laughs> you know what it goes like. Yeah. And they've just done all these things, and I'm just like, ah, you are just one hot mess. You just need. Yeah eat some food and calm down, just calm sit down. in the corner first for five seconds and eat regularly. Um, yeah. But for those who don't know a lot about it, what can you briefly explain what a um, high-fat, low-carb diet is and what some of the principles behind it are? Yeah, yeah. So um, LCHF is the acronym that floats about, which typically is lower carbohydrate, higher fat. I tend now to go with the version that is lower carbohydrate, healthy fat, because I want to try and step away from that ketogenic diet area of LCHF. So think of LCHF as being a spectrum, um, like this lower carbohydrate spe spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, which is a very extreme end, you would have a ketogenic diet whereby somebody might be consuming, you know, down between 20 to 40 grams of carbohydrates per day. Then at the other end of this LCHF spectrum, let's say the top of the spectrum, which goes up to roughly where I would be working with my clients, there'd be, there'd be up to about 150, maybe 200 grams of carbohydrates being consumed per day. And then, you know, depending on your goals, depending on my clients' goals, they would sit anywhere along that spectrum. The very extreme end being 20 to 40 grams of carbs and then the still acceptable end up to 150 to 200 grams of carbohydrates per day. Now it's lower carbohydrate in comparison to the Australian Healthy Eating Guidelines, whereby somebody might be encouraged to consume anywhere between 400 to 600 grams of carbohydrates per day. So it's really important for people to understand that it's all relative and that there is this spectrum. So it's not a one size fits all approach of you are going to be only consuming 40 grams of carbohydrates per day if you A, work with me or B, decide to go LCHF. It's just not the case. We've got this whole band that we can work in and um, it's just that this band, this spectrum doesn't go up to the 400 to 600 grams of carbohydrates per day that you know we're currently being advised is 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 ideal via our healthy eating guidelines okay yeah so 
within that spectrum of, of carbohydrates, there's still room for a lot of plant-based foods. Yeah. So the, let's say the lower carbohydrate plant-based foods like start non-starchy vegetables, you know, our green leafies, our mushrooms, our tomatoes, if you want to put that in a veggie category. Um, and there's still room for our higher carbohydrate plant-based foods. So things like uh, lentils and legumes and also starchier foods. So, you know, quinoa, rice, starchy vegetables like potato, sweet potato, and also higher sugar fruits like, let's say, bananas and apples. Okay. So, yeah, so you're saying that um, you don't avoid them completely then because I know that some people, yeah, who who will read this and go, oh, it's, you know, <laughs> lower carb, it's higher fat. Um, Ellie probably doesn't work with people who, you know, she'd be like no bananas or no sweet potato or no rice or no quinoa, no legumes, like all that sort of, you're, you're right. Like you're not saying it's either A or it's B. It's like you can be on this, on this spectrum anywhere depending on what you need. If you're exercising more, hey, you probably, need more carbs if you're not ovulating well you do need those carbohydrate sources as much as you need your fats to ovulate properly as well yeah absolutely and yeah i'm sitting here nodding it's definitely the case and so yeah your goals like whether you want to exercise more and build muscle or whether you want to exercise more and lose fat <laughs> would mean that your carbohydrate requirements are different if you're not ovulating if you're wanting to conceive if you're breastfeeding, then your carbohydrate requirements would be quite different versus somebody who actually is, you know, insulin resistant or has insulin resistant case of PCOS. It, you know, that would be somebody who, like a whole different conversation around their carbohydrate requirements and their fat requirements as well. So so can I can I pick your brain then if someone is presenting to you with really severe digestive issues um, like maybe like you or me were at some point would you do you ever recommend and do you ever follow a lower FODMAP diet and do you go through stages where you will remove um, those beans or lentils or real aggravators out the gut or do you have a different approach to that? Yeah, I guess the short answer is I would absolutely still use a lower FODMAP diet where I see it's appropriate and necessary. Like from my perspective, it's just one of the tools in my little shed that I can use to help somebody with digestive discomfort. I guess it's about looking at what's what's going on for this person's digestion. Like um, have we figured out what's the cause for their digestive issues and upset and if they are plant-based chances are i'd actually be doing some digger deeping digger deeping <laughs> deeper digging <laughs> uh, to figure out what's causing those ibs like symptoms or to figure out what's causing the digestive discomfort because sometimes like fodmap a low fodmap approach is great if we don't have the testing budget available to do let's say a metabiome or a gi map um, or you know functional markers of digestive health lower fodmap is is like a good option then but ideally we'd, we'd have the testing budget available to do some testing and get far more specific with this person's gut healing protocol so it wasn't just this whole approach of removing fodmaps for let's say four weeks to six weeks and then slowly reintroducing them yeah yep. and that, that's not just in the plant-based space like for most of my clients, I'd be having a discussion around treating root cause before we before we go into low FODMAP. And it's just that it's, I guess, even more relevant in the plant-based space because 
yeah, I don't want to be to, to be removing legumes if I don't have to. And this is also where, let's say if I was in a position where we weren't able to do testing and I would have to do a version of low FODMAP, it would be a tailored low FODMAP approach. Yeah. So weighing up, you know, the pro, if, if it was somebody who quite obviously was not reacting to, let's say, tofu then I would not remove tofu as yeah. part of their low FODMAP approach and yeah this is where the art of being a clinician as <laughs> you would know has to be has to be drawn on because you can't follow a textbook approach to a low FODMAP protocol with somebody on a plant-based diet and for a lot of people you just can't follow a textbook approach. No, nah, no. Nah. And I, I love that. I resonate that a hundred percent because I think that is the beauty of what we do. And when you do work one-on-one with someone and people do have these kinds of questions because like our courses are great and they go so far and they really help educate and give people more information and start making informed decision and maybe even open their perspective to what else is out there, like being more plant-based, you know, like there'll be people listening who are not even, you know, 30 or 40% plant-based because yeah. they just, they, they, they don't know and they're only just starting and that's totally yeah. fine as well. But then, like you said, as you get further down the track, it's like, okay, well, I don't just want to do FODMAPs and cut all these great plant foods as well. I actually do want to find that balance. And I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've heard of it, that book Fiber Fueled by Dr. Will Bersh, Bersh I'm going to say his name wrong. Um, I haven't read it, no. But You've yeah, probably heard it. of it. Yeah, he's got that amazing approach as well of just slowly including more plants into your diet and seeing what that looks like and monitoring how you feel and then watching those, you know, aggravator type foods and seeing what can be triggering those symptoms. Mm. But for those who are listening going, Dad, I don't even know where to start. Can you talk us through a little bit of a, you know, quote unquote, typical day for you? What kind of foods do you make? And I know your Instagram is beautiful and it's got lots of amazing foods on it. And I'm sure you've got plenty of recipes on your website that people can look up as well. But talk us through some of the common foods that you like to eat. Yeah. So yes, there are lots of recipes on my website for people that are like, oh my God, I do want to eat more plant-based, but where on earth do I begin? And that's why, that's really one of the reasons why I created my platform is because I I really wanted somewhere for people to go, whether they're purely plant-based or just looking for like, you know, a meat-free Monday dinner that they can bring into the family's routine. I wanted a platform that they could go to, to, to obtain that sort of, that support. Um, so what does a day look like for me? I preface this with the fact that nutrition is relative and what works for me may not work for everybody else. So I just want to highlight that because I don't want people to think like, you know, writing down like, oh, this yeah. is what she's doing. It'll work for me as well. I'm in a position whereby I'm not training for marathons anymore. I have a regular cycle. My digestion is, you know, the best it's ever been. Yay. And so that's that I guess is the platform that my diet is currently, you know, built from. So I I also have the luxury of tra- timing my training the way I want it so I tend not to train first thing in the morning which means my training happens later in the morning which means my first meal of the day happens later in the day so I will usually break my fast anywhere between 14 to 16 hours after my my last meal of the previous day and I'm absolutely obsessed with smoothies so I will usually break my fast (laughs) with a smoothie 
And I will go through my little checklist, which is, you know, getting my non-starchy vegetables into my smoothie, getting my protein in through a good quality protein powder. I use Bare Blends protein powders because I feel like they do tick all of the boxes. I then get my my two serves of quality fats in and that could change depending on my flavour preference for the day. But usually it's a combination of chia seeds or coconut cream or tahini or um, maybe peanut butter, maybe almond butter, maybe coconut yogurt, sort of a combination or just a few of, of those. I will then decide to add carbohydrates according to what my training has looked like that morning. So if it was a dog walk and yoga, then I'd probably leave it to blueberries or kiwi fruit or papaya. Or if it was a run like I did this morning, then my smoothie would be a banana-based smoothie, still with that previous checklist of veggies and proteins and quality fats in there. Um, And then because I like to have a little crunch, I top my smoothie with cacao nibs and some coconut flakes. So that's my smoothie. And unless I was bored or procrastinating, that smoothie would last me like four to five hours or sometimes even longer, which is that's the sort of feedback that I want to get from my clients as well. Uh, unless they have an eating disorder or amenorrhea, then, you know, I want my clients to be getting four or five hours of satiety from their, from their main meals. For me, because I tend to have that smoothie later in the morning, I don't have the appetite for a full lunch between my breakfast and my dinner. So the afternoon would look like a snack of some sorts. Um, at the moment, it's a no-grainer hot cross bun <laughs> that I'm having yes. in the afternoon, making the most of Easter and beyond. Um, yep. but otherwise, it might look like cacao nibs and coconut yogurt or blueberries and um, almond butter. You know, I, I sort of think fibre and fats. Like I want to get some fibre and fats in my afternoon snack to, uh, to, to keep me going into the evening. And then dinner time... It's, I'm usually a quick to the plate kind of person, as is my partner. And often we're doing things in the evening, like a dog walk or a surf or working. So it's usually quick to the plate options. And I'll try and make it different veggies to what was in my smoothie in the morning, different protein to what was in my smoothie, and just a different variety of fats as well. So it could be like a quick vegan omelette, which is, you know, tofu basically turned into an omelet style thing with lots of veggies and avocado or it could be a chili bowl so a legume based meal with not that tofu is not a legume but you know sort of a different sort of different type of legume meal so a chili bowl with um, maybe some cashew cream cheese or some avocado and, and of course lots of veggies or if if it's not quick to the plate and I'm feeling adventurous I might make like a lentil bolognese or a vegan moussaka um, or a a tempeh curry or something like that so dinner time is is you know still very much veggie based but trying to change up the the veggies that are coming through um yeah amazing in comparison to what I had in the morning yep yep all sounds good and I do love um I do love that highlight on fats you know like your afternoon snack even in that sense if you're having a bit of coconut yogurt or you're having something where you're going hey I want that bit of sad here to get me through more so than just uh, a piece of fruit or something which you know will 
does taste really good and it's nice and refreshing and you know a bit of that sweet kick or whatever but you I can feel and I can sense that your highlight is more of hey actually I want something that's you know gonna keep me going through and it's the same with your smoothies in the morning like the amount of people I do know who just have um, maybe fruit and a little bit of almond milk or some protein powder in a smoothie which is going cool yum great but it doesn't have that same satiety like you said adding those fats into it can can do for us and it is so healing as well yeah absolutely and like I said before there are some cases in which I might not want my clients to go four or five hours without eating but they might be edge cases and for the vast majority of people listening going four to five hours between main meals would probably have a number of really would probably be a really positive thing so first and foremostly when you can go those four to five hours, it's hugely freeing, like mentally not having to think about eating, for example, for four to five hours or not being sidetracked by the thought of food for four to five hours. It's actually really freeing for people and opens up to productivity and more headspace and you just let less angst around food. That's what I find in practice do you, anyway. Do you typically see that if people aren't or can't go four to five hours because they're getting hungry, you know, one to two, maybe three hours after a meal, is that generally because they do have more of a carbohydrate focus maybe and not enough fats? Is that usually the payoff? Yeah, usually, yeah, unless there's a psychological component, yeah. you know, boredom. Um, fatigue um, then usually it's it's purely coming down to the composition of their main meals and so I tend to really dial in on breakfast in somebody who doesn't have a, a good level of appetite control or somebody who's you know going having a major energy slump mid-afternoon or getting the hangries and cravings and stuff mid-afternoon I'll usually dial in on breakfast and really focus on getting the right amount of fibers quality fats quality protein and you know the appropriate amount of carbohydrate in that first meal of the day and this is where you know that I I become that annoying nutritionist who just asks like for more detail for more detail because for somebody to say I have a I have a smoothie in the morning and I don't know why I, I don't know why it doesn't keep me going all day long like you say your smoothie keeps me going so let's break down what's in that smoothie because a lot of people a smoothie means having banana and oats and yogurt and blend that up and that's your morning smoothie but you're missing out on the opportunity for fibers and quality fats and protein in there. And so you're not comparing apples with apples or you're not comparing smoothie with smoothie. Like they're two very different things, which will have two different outcomes, you know, two different people two hours later after either one of those options. And aside from like the freedom from the four to five hours of, um, of not having to eat after a meal, you then get that hormone balance. And I'm talking more about the balance of insulin. So, you know, you, you get that nice stable insulin secretion following a meal like, like my smoothie that I described that I have in the day. And so that opens the op- opens up the opportunity for fat burning to take place and I guess this lack of peaks and troughs in energy levels to take place as well. And that has a flow-on effect to fat burning ability and therefore people's ability to either lose body, body fat or stabilise their, their weight or it has a flow-on effect to those individuals that might have like a case of like testosterone dominance, um, 
because that excess insulin can drive excess testosterone production. So there's this whole level of hormone balance that can come about as a result of getting that, just that level of satisfaction from that first meal in the day and subsequent meals in the day as well. I didn't mention digestive ease. So like that, not having to eat every couple of hours really gives the digestive system an opportunity to do its job. You know, it takes around about four to six hours for the, for the, um, for the stomach to empty. And so if we can not be eating during that process, then it means that the digestive system system has an opportunity to be more efficient with the job of dealing with that, dealing with that prior meal. So getting those meal to meal windows down pat is also a strategy that I use for individuals with digestive discomfort. And it can be really helpful in the plant-based space where you haven't got the opportunity to necessarily remove FODMAPs like, like we were talking about before. Reducing eating frequency is a way of um, helping to bring like efficiency to digestion and therefore take some pressure off the digestive system. Yeah, I, I love that. I love all of that. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. So many key points and so many amazing things in there. I think you're absolutely right. One, clearly pointing out that everyone's different. So when you're going to eat is different to when I'm going to eat, when I'm going to eat is different to when others are going to eat. And, you know, even things like your your schedule with kids and your work schedule and your training yeah. schedule. And if, if and when you're drinking caffeine and when you're having coffee is another whole, you know, kettle of fish in itself because that, yeah. you know, you. I mean, I can imagine, I don't know if you drink coffee, but same thing again. I think you would be thinking about your timing of that with your meals as well. Yeah, so I do drink coffee. <laughs> um, I've gone through periods of not drinking coffee or timing my coffee, i.e. when I was going through burnout or recovering from burnout in 2016. But now I have my coffee, I would say, relatively early in the morning, so within an hour of waking. I don't have it with food and um, I, I'm at the moment on a iron and multi-B supplement, so I don't have caffeine around that supplement either. I don't go to a second coffee. So any any anything else I have later in the day would either be a decaf coffee or a cacao drink or a or um, like a mushroom tea based drink. And I also don't get coffee from cafes very often. So as bad as this sounds, I drink sort of organic instant coffee, but it means I can moderate the amount of caffeine that's there in my drink. So if I have a coffee from a cafe these days, I'll be you know, shaking. Yep, yep. <laughs> I really I'm, will feel it. Yes, mm. I'm the same straight to my head, shakes. I feel hungry, like make me run to the loo sometimes. Mm. Like I never really know. It's it's a bit of like a is this gonna be okay or is it not? And sometimes yeah. it's fine and sometimes it's not. But I enjoy a coffee at home so much more because I can just yeah time it, moderate it better, know how much is in it, know how it's gonna affect me, know what beans it is. Like there's just so mm. much more control. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. Um, I think for a lot of people, they don't really even consider their caffeine intake. It's something that's, it's based on habit, you know, wanting to leave the office, wanting something to do, or it's based on like so wanting to be social. So meeting somebody and having a coffee. Uh, and so for somebody with digestive discomfort or, you know, anxiety or peaks and troughs in their energy levels, 
like starting with caffeine intake can be life-changing and it's relatively simple and doesn't cost a lot. In fact, you can save save money from doing it. Yeah, and there's actually some great alternatives these days as well. Yeah, there are so many alternatives that people can have. Um, I remember once being told by a naturopath to have dandelion tea instead of coffee. That, in my opinion, is not an ideal alternative. It does not taste like coffee, but there are other options, either, you know, a good quality decaf or just preparing your taste buds for something else, you know. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's so many beautiful teas out there and herbal teas. And if you think about the the you know, let's just say women in particular who may be reducing their coffee intake anyway, because often it is linked to hey, maybe they've got energy problems or adrenal or insulin or you know all these spikes and things. Then you're going well. What if we swap it out to something like spearmint tea, which I know doesn't taste the same, but once you get over that mental shift, the actual you know what spearmint's doing for that testosterone, that DHT balance and things and bringing you know maybe it's acne or things down anyway you're all of a sudden you're adding in another nutritional kind of powerhouse which you mm-hmm. never thought of earlier because you're you're drinking coffee so why would you be drinking tea if I'm having coffee in the morning yeah. so it does open up this kind of world of change of things you can experience and add into your diet as well yeah exactly you know suddenly your afternoon drink can go from being like health degrading to being health promoting and often it's it's not even it's not even the coffee it's just the act it, like I said it's the social act or it's the getting away from the desk or it's wanting to get something to eat but trying not to eat so pouring a drink <laughs> instead and so yeah you can achieve that by making a range of other a range of other drinks yes yes well thank you so so much for being on today I feel like I've got all this content that I'm gonna have to go over and re-listen myself Mm -hmm. because it was just incredible but for those who have listened and gone oh wow I want to know more where can people reach out to you where can they get more information yeah tell us a little bit yeah it's been great talking to you by the way as well time has flown and hopefully we've we've shared some some helpful some helpful tidbits for for people my website is nutritionally or nutrition followed by ellie com, and from my website people can dive into all of the plant-based recipes that i have there my blog which is really a home for sort of i guess insights that would be relevant to the plant-based community but to others as well and then also all the information on my one-on-one offerings are available on my website and then my plant-based kickstarter online program the details on that is also available via nutritionally.com so i'd say that's like the one-stop shop for people who want resources and also to learn about working together in whatever whatever shape that looks like beautiful yep and i will link all of that into the show notes of course so you guys can find that nice and easily um but yeah otherwise hit ellie up on her website her recipes her instagram it is beautiful as well and it's full of resourceful good content which i'm all about these days because anyone can have you know good food recipes and whatever but if there's some kind of nutritional science or other things going on as well. I just feel like there's so much more for us to learn. So I will link all of that in. And yeah, thank you so, so much for coming on and chatting today. Thanks, Sheridan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Empowered Hormone Podcast. If you know a female who needs some empowerment, please forward, repost, tag or share and let's get women talking.